It's a uh, great privilege and honor for me to be here along with my wife, Shayla, today. Uh, I think the last time we were here was last October, I think. Um, it was such a joy the last time we were here, so we're glad to be back. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and acts for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so I want to establish some context here. I want you to picture this, that Jesus is on his way going up to Jerusalem. If you go back a chapter in Luke 13, verse 22, it says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to be tortured. He's on his way to be murdered by being nailed to a cross like a criminal. But yet his teaching is attracting large crowds. Our text says that great crowds accompanied him. So they were following him around. They had no clue that this man that they admired so much, that they liked so much, was about to die. Luke is trying to paint the picture that these were people that, that were flocking to Christ. So they liked his, his eloquence. They liked the fact that he did miracles. They were probably amazed at that. They appreciated the fact that he was so generous in healing, that he was so generous in feeding people. As Jews, they probably expected him to reestablish the nation of Israel in political dominance. See, they all saw something in Jesus that was beneficial for themselves. They were like many people today who get excited when they hear their favorite preacher or motivational personality, I suppose, come to town. It's not that they truly believe in the message, but it's that they want some sort of benefit from that person. In other words, they like to have their ears tickled. They like to imagine these people, a nice God who wants to grant all their wishes. Now, Jesus turns to these people and it's almost as if he wanted to get rid of them. And he turns to them and notice that he says three times that a person who isn't willing to give this up cannot be my disciple. 
If they're not willing to give that up, they cannot be my disciple. If you don't want to renounce all of this, you cannot be my disciple. It's almost as if he's trying to chase them away. And so the question for us today is this. I want us to consider this. What does our religion cost us? Do we have what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, of course, we know that salvation is a free gift of God. I'm not trying to say that justification is something that you earn, that we stand before God justified solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. It's not because we earned our way into heaven. We know that. But at the same time, the decision to be lifelong followers or disciples of Jesus Christ will cost all of us something, right? It's not simple and easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So have you considered what it will cost you to be a Christian? And so I want to challenge you today, and I hope I do with this message, not to settle for a cheap, costless Christianity. I don't want you to settle like the crowds that follow Jesus simply because they wanted something. So in our text, Jesus is telling us that discipleship requires three things. Three things. The first is undivided loyalty. The second is total self-denial. And the last thing is the renouncing of all our possessions. And let's start with the first thing. That being a disciple of Christ requires our undivided loyalty. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, notice that Christ here says anyone that comes to him. He doesn't say if the Jews come to me or if the Gentiles come to me or I don't know, if the rich people comes to me. He says, if anyone comes to me, this is an open invitation for anyone to come to him. He wants anyone to come to him. And so he's making this message, this application, as broad as possible because he wants us all to come to him. And so this coming refers to the initial decision to be a disciple. It's the beginning of the Christian journey, so to speak. So Christ is saying that no one can claim allegiance to him without first hating their family. Now, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh. Because nothing makes humans happier than those bonds, that loving time, that, that togetherness with family and siblings and friends. And here is our Lord telling us that we need to hate that in order to follow him. Now, of course, let's qualify that, that Jesus is speaking in a Hebraic style here. And so hate cannot be literal. And we know that from other portions of Scripture. And so we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? And so Matthew 5, verse 43, for example, says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, this is Jesus, say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, in Matthew chapter 10, just a, just a couple verses down, it says, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me, more than me, that's the key phrase there, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not 
worthy of me. So clearly Jesus is saying here that, that hate is in some sense meaning that you have to love your family less than you love Christ. And so our loyalty to Christ must be so undivided, so absolute, that it makes our love for all of our other family members and friends seem like hate. So your decision to follow Christ eventually means that you will fall into conflict with your unbelieving family members and friends. Your loyalty will be tested at some point. Don't think that your closest relatives and friends will always accept you and your Christian faith. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 says, Do not think, this is Jesus again, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring, to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And so Jesus is saying that a true disciple of me must be willing to give up all these family relationships. And so the crowds who follow Jesus being Jews, considered their Jewish heritage as something that transcended all other bonds. It transcended all other allegiances. They thought that because Christ was a Jew and they were Jews, that somehow they were qualified to be a disciple. They thought that because of who they were, who they descended from, that, that qualified them, them to be a Christian. But remember John the Baptist, what he says in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. And this is what he was saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to him desiring to be baptized and to repent. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because that's what they thought. We have Abraham as our father. So we're good. We're okay. I mean, we're not that good, but at least we're better than those people that don't have Abraham as their father, right? This is what he says. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And so it's actually the abandonment of family heritage which truly marks a disciple. And so just because you come from a good family doesn't mean you're a Christian. You hear a lot of people say that in the South. Well, I was raised as a Christian. My mom raised me to be a Christian. I was always going to church. Well, that doesn't mean you're a disciple. But how many of us idolize our family and our friendship bonds? How many of us are guilty of being a little less Christian when we get around our family and our friends? How many of us shy away from bringing the Bible to bear on issues in front of our family and friends because we don't want to offend them? How many of us long for the acceptance of our family and friends more than the acceptance of Christ? See, every man, woman, and child here today who wishes to follow Christ has to consider this. That if you are not prepared to choose Christ over your family, then you cannot be a disciple. Now, Christ goes even further than that, as, as if that wasn't enough. He goes even further. He says, this is the, the second thing, that being a disciple of Christ requires total self-denial. In verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot 
be my disciple. So again, whoever, meaning anyone, anyone who chooses to come to Christ, not some people have to bear their cross, but whoever comes after Christ has to bear their cross. And Christ doesn't say they have to bear someone else's cross or they have to bear my cross. He says that you have to bear your own cross. Now, I'll admit, this verse is the subject to widespread abuse. Everyone has their own special interpretation on what the cross is. So now some people, and I hope I don't offend anyone here, but some people think that the cross is some secret lust that they struggle with. Some secret sin that you've been struggling with for years, that's just your cross. You have to bear that because you're a Christian. You really want to do it, but because you're a Christian, you can't, and that's just your cross. I'll submit to you today that that is not the cross. Some people think that the cross is some difficult person in their life. The cross is their spouse or their child or some coworker that just makes them want to pull out their hair. That's their cross. Or, even more than that, some people think that the cross is their own personal suffering. That the cross is probably sickness or maybe personal difficulties or loss of wealth or discontentment. And I want to be sensitive for that because that is difficult, but I think that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. Because if that's what the cross is, then what makes your cross different from what unbelievers experience? Unbelievers have things that they struggle with that they really wish that they could not struggle with. Now, of course, they don't view their sins Christianly, but they have things that they want to stop doing that they know are wrong. Unbelievers have difficult people in their lives. Unbelievers have discontentment. They have loss of wealth. They suffer in some ways. They don't see that suffering in light of Christ, but they suffer. So if your cross is simply personal difficulty, then what makes you a Christian? How is that different from an unbeliever? It has to be something more than that that Jesus is calling us to bear. Now, when we considered the cross, what was it? It was a symbol of death, right? In, in the, the empire of Rome, the cross was used as a form of capital punishment. And so the symbol of the cross was like us looking at a, a noose or an electric chair today. And so consider Jesus on the road to Calvary, and he had to carry his own cross, which is really the, the cross beam. And it was about a, a hundred pounds, and he's, he's beaten and he's tortured. And he's carrying this cross to bear the sins of you and me, people that, that hate him. And he's so bloodied and bruised that Simon of Cyrene actually had to help him carry this cross. Now, for Jesus, what did that cross represent? It's not just simply personal suffering or a little difficulty. It was much more than that. That for Jesus, the cross represented the renunciation of all the honor and the glory he had as God. That he intrinsically had as God. And that he gave that up to die a gruesome, humiliating death on behalf of sinners. That's what his cross represented. It was self-renunciation. Paul alludes to this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, here is Christ on his way to die and to be humiliated. And he's telling a crowd that in order to follow him, they need to bear their own cross, their own humiliation, their own shame. So in a sense, if we are to follow Christ, we can't expect a life of glory and honor in this world, right? We will suffer a similar, though not the exact same, but a similar shame and humiliation like our Lord. John 15, verse 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so the crowds following Jesus expected their lives to be filled with glory and honor and victory. They didn't expect, nor did they desire a suffering, shameful Messiah. You see, the cross represents, brothers and sisters, the death of our own lives. The giving up of everything that we think that we are for the sake of Christ. The cross is nothing less than our own self-denial and abandonment of personal ambition, comfort, pleasure, anything that leads us away from our Lord. And so this is another way of saying that we need to hate our own life. The Greek words for bear and come are actually in the present tense, which means it's a bearing, it's a, it's a coming. And so the bearing of the cross refers to the entire Christian life. We need to continually deny ourselves every single day and come to Christ. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a commentator on this text, he says this about the cross. I have heard good people speak of some suffering of their own, some physical disability, some mental trouble, some loss in material things, some very real personal suffering as being the cross. They say of such experience, of course we have to bear the cross. That is not the cross. I am never sharing in the cross merely because I am suffering. While suffering is egocentric, while it belongs to me personally, it is suffering and God knows I am not speaking unsympathetically of such suffering, but that is not the cross. We can only interpret our cross by his cross. So I return to the same question. What does your religion cost you? Now, some, some common costs of our faith, and everyone is familiar with this, so I'm just going to throw out a couple here, is that some men might say, well, since I am a, a Christian and I am a, a husband and a father, then I, I might not be able to work as much as I want to and make as much money as I want to because I have to shepherd my family. And that is a cross, but I do think that Christ is talking about something even more than that. Yes, you have to give that up, but there's something even more. Some women might say, well, okay, I am a Christian, 
and I have to give up my career aspirations to, to fulfill the, the calling of being a, a, a mother and a wife. This is what God has called me to. And so that is a cost that I, I have to just bear. And that is a cost. But Christ is calling us to something more than even that. Some children, some younger people here, following Christ might mean, yeah, you can't date that, that unbeliever, that person that isn't that serious about their faith. And so you might have to give that up for Christ. And that's true, but again, I will say that that isn't the cost here. It's something even more than that. Your preferred sins, your personal comfort, your time, all those things are good and right that you have to give up for the sake of Christ, but there's something even more here that Jesus is talking about. Because I think more than all of that, all of those things that you have to give up, that the true cost of being a disciple is our own sense of self-righteousness, your own sense of being a good and worthy person. Now, you might think I'm just making this stuff up, but this is exactly what Paul says in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So Paul was a pretty good guy. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That gain being also his own self-righteousness. He counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse eight, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now what is the result of the renunciation of self-righteousness? Well, Paul says it in verse nine, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so the renunciation of ourselves, brothers and sisters, includes the giving up of your own self-righteousness, the giving up of your own virtue, which is really a, a self-perceived virtue because we always think we're better than others, right? And so to be a true disciple, you need to recognize that you actually have nothing to offer Christ. And this is why Christ is truly saying that you need to give these things up because he doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. And so the crowds who followed him thought they had something. They had something that qualified them to be a disciple. Some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who followed him actually thought that they were better than others. In the book of Luke, right in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So the worst of the worst was drawing near to Christ. And the Pharisees, this is verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, I think what Luke is trying to say here is that these people were a part of the crowds that were following Christ. They complained when they saw sinners, the worst of the worst of society, following Christ, placing faith in them, because they thought they were better than them. 
They thought they had something that truly qualified them to be disciples, whether it was their self-virtue or their ethnicity. And they saw these people that had nothing except faith, and they complained about it. And that's why Christ is saying this stuff here, because he wants people to bring nothing to him except faith. And so we need to recognize that we come to Christ as poor beggars with nothing to offer. J.C. Ryle, a really good Anglican bishop from the 19th century, he says, true Christianity will cost a man his self-righteousness. He must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceits of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved only by grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. He must really feel as well as say the prayer book words that he has erred and gone astray like a lost sheep, that he has left undone the things he ought to have done and done the things he ought not to have done and that there is no health in him. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going, and sacrament receiving, and to trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I thank God that he doesn't require me to have my own righteousness because I don't have it. I don't have it. This is the second time I preach this text and the second time I'm convicted by my own words that I don't have it. I don't stand before you as an example of righteousness. Don't follow me, follow Christ. And so this text may sound scary on the surface of it because Christ is demanding a lot here. But really, when you understand it, how can you not come to a savior like this? That he's telling you to renounce all because he wants you to come to him empty-handed. He requires nothing from you but to trust in him alone. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, have you given up your own self-righteousness? Have you given up your own pride? Do you recognize your inadequacy to truly offer God anything of value? If you have not, I implore you now, flee to him now. Trust in him. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is not trying to scare you away from following him, but he doesn't want superficial followers, right? And so we all know about easy believism. It's this kind of theology where you make a decision for Christ now and you can live your life however you want to live it. Christ doesn't want followers like that. Prideful churchgoers, they act extra sanctified for church on Sunday, but the rest of the week they're living their life however they want to live it. We all know people like that. Cultural Christians, people who only follow Christ because that's just how they were raised, right? This is my own personal little phrase I came up with but I call it crisis Christians. These are Christians who pray and read their Bible more than anyone else whenever they want something, whenever they're in some sort of life crisis. Emotionally driven Christians who only follow Christ after they get hyped up on some sort of religious experience. And then when they come down from the high, they don't even know if they believe in Christ anymore. See, God wants needy sinners who understand that they need Christ every single day. 
He doesn't want followers who simply want some sort of benefit from him. And so we need to weigh the cost. That's what Christ is saying here. If you want to follow me, you need to weigh the cost. You need to understand what I'm requiring from you. So Jesus gives us two parables to illustrate the necessity of weighing the cost. Look at the first in, in verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so you're a fool if you start some sort of building project and you lay the foundation and you don't even calculate whether you have enough money, material, and time to finish the building. People are going to laugh at you. And so Christ is saying that you are pretty foolish if you don't actually sit down and weigh the cost of what it takes to follow me. That you're foolish if you choose to call yourself a Christian, but you're not ready to renounce yourself, especially your self-righteousness. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and acts for terms of peace. And so the king obviously has less soldiers than his enemy. And so he has to consider, what am I going to do here? Am I going to fight and lose and get hurt, possibly die? Or am I going to sue for peace? And so we need to read this text and realize that we don't have the resources to do this on our own. We don't have the resources to fight. We don't have the resources to truly be qualified in and of ourselves to be a disciple. Remember, disciples of Christ are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is Paul using this war, this soldier terminology. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And so we need to make peace terms with the Father through Jesus Christ to win this war. We need to make peace with Christ and beg him for mercy, surrendering our entire lives to him, being willing to suffer shame and reproach. That is the cost of true discipleship. Now, the last thing, and we're almost done, is that being a disciple of Christ requires that we renounce all our possessions. Verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So following Christ is more than just undivided loyalty, is more than bearing your own cross, the renunciation of yourself, the renunciation of your virtue. It also includes renouncing all your material possessions. Now, what is Christ doing here? It's almost as if Jesus is making the qualifications of being a disciple so impossibly hard that no one can be a disciple. And that's exactly the point. That is the point. See, we're not meant to read these texts and think, well, yeah, I've already done that. Hate my own family, my friends, my wife, my children. Yeah, I'm going to check that off. I already did that one. Renounce myself, my own self-virtue, my own pride. Yeah, I do that perfectly already, so I'll check that one off too. I'm good. Renouncing all my material possessions, placing no trust or even struggling to place trust in the world. 
I'm perfect at that. I'm qualified to be a disciple. That's not what Christ is aiming at here. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't aim at these things. What I'm saying is that you're lying to yourself if you think you do this perfectly. And so remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, just a couple chapters forward. In verse 18, it says, and a ruler asked himself, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So he said, basically, you telling me to keep the commandments? Well, I'm perfect at that. What else you got? I'm already good on that law stuff. What else you got? Now, of course, Christ is, is trying to expose him. So Jesus gives him a little bit of a test. He says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And so for this rich young ruler, claiming to be perfect, really his wealth, his possessions was his idol, which proves that he actually hadn't kept any of these laws perfectly. And so his unwillingness to give up his possessions proved that he was not qualified to be a disciple. So Jesus is exposing his sinful heart. The rich young ruler really wanted to earn his place in the kingdom. He wanted a place in the kingdom based upon his own accomplishments. And Christ here isn't giving him a blueprint for salvation. Christ is basically saying to him, you can't do it on your own. You don't have what it takes to truly earn your spot in the kingdom. And so Christ is doing the same thing in our text in Luke. In one sense, Christ is not saying that we need to literally sell everything that we have. You need to sell your house, sell your car, give away all your money. He's not saying that. Of course, being his disciple means we hold our material possessions loosely, not being materialistic and obsessed with the riches of the world. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, the true reason that Christ is giving this test is not so that he can teach us about how to handle our wealth. Not in this case right here. What Christ is really saying is that he must be our sole object of focus. See, in a, in a much deeper sense, Christ is seeing the crowds, again, following him, not for him, not because he was the object of their focus, but because of something material that they wanted from him. Remember, they wanted Christ to probably conquer their Roman oppressors. They wanted rulership and wealth from Christ. Look at the amount of people today who flock to prosperity gospel preachers, not because they believe in Christ, but because they want something. They want a blessing. They want money. They want ease of life. They want comfort, a better house, a better car. 
They want a genie who will grant all their wishes. And here is Christ making the cost of discipleship so hard that the only people who will follow him are those that will abandon their self-righteousness and their personal ambitions, who will abandon all their desires for pleasure and approach him through faith. You see, the only people that will follow Christ after hearing this text is people that want Christ alone. And so the people that Christ truly wants don't care about riches or rulership or reputation or comfort. Christ wants disciples flocking after him for salvation of their souls. People who would give up everything to be at peace with God. In that parable of the, the rich young ruler, or really it was just an event, not a parable, but it ends with this in verse, this is Luke 18, verse 26. It says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? This is how the disciples responded to what Christ was saying. Well, if that's the case, if a rich man can't be saved, who's claiming to be so holy, then who can be saved? And Christ said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so this should be our response when we recognize that we cannot be faithful followers of God, that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. We should cast ourselves upon Christ in desperation. We should flee to him in faith and ask him to preserve us, to keep us, to save us. So I want to end, brothers and sisters, by again asking you, why are you here? What's the purpose of you being here in this church right now? Are you here because you think following Christ is somehow the shortcut to happiness? Are you here because you think being a Christian is somehow just more enjoyable than being anything else? Or are you here because you've chosen the narrow path, Christ, in order to be right with God? Do you recognize that outside of Christ, that all of our souls are dangling above the abyss of hell? And there is no salvation outside of Christ. And so I want to implore you again to give up everything now and turn to Christ and his saving work and his imputed righteousness and his atoning death and follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for what you have accomplished for believers based on your son's death, Lord. I, I want to ask, Father, that you truly allow this text to sink in to our hearts and that you help us to understand that we are not worthy to follow you. We're not qualified to be your disciples. Neither do you desire from us righteousness, Lord, or do you desire from us a good reputation. You desire nothing except for us to come to you in faith. And so I ask, Lord, that for anyone here who has not placed their faith in you, that you draw them to yourself, Father, and you allow them to trust in you and in you alone. I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand. It may be that uh, you need to respond to the invitation that you've heard. And uh, we're going to sing Only Trust Him. Just a couple of verses. We appreciate the word we've heard this morning. So uh, only trust Him.